Hi, I'm Matt Smith, and you're listening to the Conversations Speaking With podcast. If you were to look at a map, and keep in mind that this map needs to be of a pretty good scale, you might see a small dot in the Indian Ocean called Christmas Island. While it's closer to Java, it is part of the Australian Territory, and it's here where an ecological saga is unfolding. The island is home to the Christmas Island Red Crab, and while they're known for swarming in the millions, their numbers are under threat. I spoke to Peter Green. He's the head of Ecology, Environment and Evolution at La Trobe University. He's been looking at the problem for the past 20 years, and he believes that he may have the solution. Let me tell you what the main issue, or what we think is the main pressing environmental issue on Christmas Island is right now. When I first went to the island in 1988, the dominant animal on the forest floor was the famous Christmas Island red crab. And simply put, everywhere that you walked in the forest on Christmas Island, there were lots and lots of crabs. What, what kind of crab are we talking about? What size is it? So this is called the red land crab, Gicarsoidia natalis, mm. and the large ones are about the size of a dinner plate when it's, all its legs are sort of out and walking. Right, yeah. Um, so they're large and they live in burrows in the forest and they eat seeds and seedlings and they're really important in the forest ecology. By the late 1990s, we started to notice areas where the red crabs had disappeared and where we were getting massive carpets of seedling recruitment on the forest floor, which is something that you don't typically see in this forest. And we pinned it down to an invasive ant, and this is the yellow crazy ant, Anapolepis gracilipes, and it forms super colonies. And these super colonies are very, very high uh, density infestations of ants possibly around 1,000 ants per square metre on the forest floor. And they don't bite and they don't sting, but they shoot little jets of formic acid. And in these very high densities, uh, they can overwhelm these much, much larger crabs and kill them. Mm, mm. And so in super colony areas that can be tens, if not hundreds of hectares large, uh, the crabs are gone and the ecology is really different. Right, so you went from a, a landscape where there were literally crabs all over the forest floors of Christmas Island. They migrate in big swarms, don't they? They do. Once a year, they leave the yeah. forest and head to the coast for breeding. But now you can you can notice the difference. You can notice a drop-off, can you? Oh, the difference is is astonishing, particularly for someone who's been going there for a long time and, yeah. and has that longer-term history. There are very large tracts of the forest on Christmas Island now where the understory is so thick that it's it's a bit difficult to walk through where I have personal histories, history with those patches uh, going back 20 or 25 years, and they were just the classic open understory that you see on Christmas Island. Mm. So the ants have created a state change in the understory in the forest, and in another 100 or 200 years, a lot of those seedlings will make it to become big trees and the forest will be quite different. So how do you deal with it with a problem like that? I mean, the conventional wisdom says you've got an introduced species it's less problematic to get rid of those to help the crab population recover. How are you going about addressing the, the problem and trying to tip the balance back in favour of the crabs? The danger that the invasion by uh, yellow crazy ants posed to the ecology of the island, we recognised very early. 
and so did Christmas Island National Park. They got on board with the idea that we needed to do something about this almost immediately. And so for well, ever since uh, 2001, the super colonies have been managed with poison bait. Yeah either dispersed by people walking in emu lines through the bush, which is really tough work, or on three different occasions, Parks has organised a helicopter to come out and spread the bait. And the bait works really well. Um, but yeah, as you'd well imagine, there are concerns about bioaccumulation of the bait itself or the bait products and the non-target issues associated with the bait. Mm. Um, so we're looking for alternatives. So what's the alternative? The alternative is to... Well, in, in in some aspects, do what happened when the cane toad got out of control. I mean, that's a situation that you don't want in, <laughs> no, in Queensland. No, we certainly don't. So you're referring to biological control, and, and that's what myself and my team have been working on uh, with colleagues in national parks and in the Forest Research Institute of Malaysia for the last several years. And biological control is a technique that is used quite commonly in agricultural situations to deal with agricultural pests. It's much less commonly considered as a solution, if you like, to environmental problems. In this case, we are looking at introducing a biological control agent not to directly target the ant, but to target the ant's main source of food. So when you're in a super colony, the first thing you notice is thousands of ants crawling around on the ground and occasionally up your legs as well. But then you look around and you'll see these ants running up and down trees, skinny ones going up the tree and fat ones coming down. They're visiting scale insects up in the, the tops of the trees in the, in the canopy. And scale insects are a bit like aphids. So the female scale insects settle on a, a skinny little branch and they insert their proboscis into individual plant cells and they suck plant sap. Mm. And they're really looking for the low concentrations of nitrogen in the plant sap itself. So in the process of extracting nitrogen, they're processing large volumes of plant sap and the excess comes out their rear end as what we call honeydew, which is this sugar-rich resource that ants love to collect. One of our postdoctoral researchers uh, demonstrated very nicely that it's the sugar content in the honeydew that permits the ants to form these infestations. Right, right. So our reasoning is if we can um, restrict the food supply, we could probably suppress supercolony formation and deal with the issue that way. So there's no issue going after these scale insects then because they are also, like the ants, an introduced species, aren't they? Yes. So our other postdoc on the project, who is a, a specialist entomologist in biocontrol, did a very comprehensive survey of all of the scale insects on the island. And it's hard to say to 100% certainty where things come from. But through a careful consideration of the worldwide distribution of these species that we found, everyone that we talked to has accepted that none of the scale insects are actually native to the island. They're all introductions mm. um, since human settlement in 1888. The next logical step is, is how do you deal with the problem of the scale insects? There are probably four species of scale insects that contribute to what I call the honeydew economy of these super colonies. And there's one species in particular that we think is the most important. It's a thing called the yellow lac scale, 
which is Tachydina aurantiaca. We're pretty certain that that scale is native to Southeast Asia principally. And so one of our postdocs went to Southeast Asia, located the scale insect in its native range, and then identified its natural enemies. And it has several, but one of them is a micro wasp, which is a parasite of the scale insect. So the female wasps lay their eggs inside the scale insect Mm. and the developing larva consume the scale insect and kill it that way. I suppose that the plan is then to to introduce a wasp, the micro wasp, trust it to do its job to deal with the scale insect problem, which in turn will keep the ants under the check and give the crabs a bit of a chance to recover. That's exactly the chain events of events that we envisage happening. Yeah. Um, But you're correct. We're proposing to introduce yet another non-native species to the island Mm. and its invasive species that are causing most of the concern out there in all sorts of ways, not just for the crabs, but for other things as well. And so to get permission to do this, we've had to do uh, a lot of science and make a case that not only do we think the wasp will control the scale insect to the degree that we want, but that the wasp won't attack anything else. In other words, it will be host-specific. And so we have uh, made that case to the Department of Environment and the Department of Agriculture, and through various legislative procedures, we've obtained that permission. So we're very close to introducing the wasp. You're now at wasp point. We are at wasp point yeah. within the next few months, yeah. I hate to see the size of the document that you've been working on all these years. Several. Several? <laughs> several large documents, yeah. yeah, and several scientific publications and all the rest of it. But the end point, well, I say the end point is the introduction of the wasp. That's actually the start. Once we get the wasp onto the island, we need to propagate the wasp to build up its numbers so that we have sufficient to go and spread in the forest. And then, of course, we need to monitor very carefully what goes on after that. I don't want to say do you dream about it, but do you hope to one day see waves of crabs running around in the the same sort of populations that they did 30-odd years ago? Oh, absolutely. That's the end game of this whole very long process that we entered into, well, in 2009, is to recover the crab population. So a really interesting and depressing statistic is that since the rise of the crazy ant super colonies, we've probably lost at least a third and probably nearer a half of all the red crabs from Christmas Island. So that's a population decline from 70 million, probably down to 40 million or thereabouts. Mm. And even though we're talking about tens of millions of crabs left, it's still a huge decline in a very short space of time. A few months later, I got Peter back in the interview chair to get an update on the project. So, I hear the wasp is on Christmas Island. I saw a red carpet. Uh, That's correct. It was quite something to see. So, uh, through November, there were some very frantic preparations to breed up a, a bunch of wasps with our collaborators at the Forest Research Institute in Malaysia. Moons aligned in such a way that uh, we were able to get on the plane on the 7th of December 
and introduced the first 164 wasps uh, to the island. And the anticipation was such that our colleagues from National Parks had literally rolled out a red carpet for us. That must have been a bit of a, a head scratcher to the other passengers on the plane. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No one's really seemed to know what was going on except the select few in the know. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it kind of shows a bit how much of a build-up this has been for you and for the people working on this and, oh, yeah. and how much of an event this was. Uh, this was huge. Yeah. This was the culmination of seven years of, of hard work and research and negotiating various government approvals and and even just negotiating the logistics of how you actually do the introduction of a biocontrol agent. Mm. So on the plane, we had representatives from La Trobe Uni, Parks Australia, Christmas Island, the Department of Agriculture and the Forest Research Institute. So yeah. it was, we had to align four institutions uh, all to get on the plane at the same time. So what happens now? Are the wasps in the wild? So initially the wasps were taken into what you might loosely call semi-containment. So we took them out to a, a purpose-built shade house out in the centre of the island where we introduced the wasps to their scale insects inside mesh bags. So yeah. if you can picture a, a largish two-metre tall seedling in a pot with a mesh sleeve over one branch and the mesh sleeve encases maybe 20 or 30 scale insects. Yeah. We put the wasps inside there to contain the wasps so that um, we made it easier for them to find their hosts essentially. And uh, they've established incredibly well. Mm. And after that first batch of 160 odd, um, our collaborator from Frim went home and found that her production line had been so successful that she had another couple of hundred. Couple of hundred wasps. Couple of hundred wasps, which she posted to the island via Perth. And the via Perth is important because our Department of Ag colleague was able to inspect the wasps just as he, he did 10 days previously passed them all fit and healthy and the right species, and then he forwarded them onto the island. So from that first combined batch, if you like, uh, we got um, 1,200 wasps. Wow, that's fantastic. The first generation on the island. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the first releases of the wasp, that is the first release into the wild, sort of metaphorically lift the lid, if you like, uh, happened in January. And our colleagues out there are just about to do the third site early days I realise but Mm. how long do you think it's going to take before you go right this is working this is the $64,000 question we're not sure so we know that the generation time of the wasp is about three weeks and so from the initial few hundred that we're introducing to each site... You're a few generations on already. A couple of generations on yeah. from the first site. And so the first few hundred will quickly ramp up to thousands and tens of thousands. Look, this is a guess, but it might be six to 12 months before we know for any one particular site whether or not the wasps are working in two different ways. One is, are they suppressing the scale insect that we want them to suppress? Yeah. And whether or not suppressing that one scale insect is sufficient to suppress the ants. That's the second part of the equation. So before the wasps arrived, we set up a a fairly intensive monitoring program. So we have both before and after data Mm. uh, so that we can gauge both of those things. Is the wasp suppressing the scale? And by suppressing the scale, are we seeing a decline in the ant activity? 
How are you monitoring this process then? We're monitoring the parasitisation of the scales in the canopy by using shotguns. So our colleagues in Parks Australia and I believe the local police Mm. have been helping us shoot branches out of the canopy so that we can see how well the wasp is establishing on the scale insects. And of course, all of that action happens 20 or 30 metres above the ground. So you've got to use shotguns to get your samples. Yeah. But in terms of monitoring the ants, uh, we're using GoPros to film the ants running up and down tree trunks. And you can determine the number of ants crossing the field of view per unit time as a a measure of ant activity. Mm. And if suppressing the scale suppresses the ant, the ant activity on tree trunks will drop off over time. Because there won't be as much for them to feed on. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. we're also doing our standard monitoring of ants on the ground where we have a small piece of um, plastic card that you throw on the ground and you count the number of ants crossing the card in 30 seconds and that's been a standard methodology for us for almost 20 years. Yeah, yeah. So you'll be able to tell by, by this time next year how much of an effect this has been? I think we'll have a very good indication uh, from a handful of sites how well it's working. And if the wasps disperse of their own accord, we'll be in a position to pick that up as well. We have other monitoring going on to pick that up. Yeah. And if we think that they need a bit of a helping hand, uh, we might disperse the wasps more widely beyond just our experimental sites. But in the best of all possible worlds, they'll do that job themselves. Mm. Exciting times. Very exciting times. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Dr Peter Green, Head of Ecology, Environment and Evolution at La Trobe University. And you have been listening to the Speaking With podcast from The Conversation. If you like this podcast, subscribe to it in iTunes and ratings and reviews are appreciated. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening.